Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. Chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Burkett notes, the foregoing chapter gives us an account of Judas, his treason in delivering our Savior into the hands of the chief priests. In this chapter, we find our Holy Lord brought by the chief priests unto Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, in order to his arraignment and condemnation. Whence observe that it has been the old policy of corrupt church governors to abuse the power of the civil magistrate in executing their cruel and unjust censures upon holy and innocent persons. The chief priests and elders do not kill our Savior themselves, but they deliver him over to the secular power and desire Pilate, the civil magistrate, to sentence and condemn him, which soon after we shall find he did. They bound him and led him away. But what need was there of binding him that never made any resistance? And oh, what ingratitude it was to bind him with cords who came to unloose those bands of sin wherewith we were bound. Verses 3-5 through Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. Burkett notes, Here we have a sad relation of Judas's desperate death after a hypocritical life, as also of the horror of his mind and conscience before his death. Observe here, one, the time when Judas repented, after it was too late. When he saw that he was condemned, he repented. Learn thence that they that will not see their sins timely to their conversion shall see them sooner or later to their confusion. Observe, too, the repentance itself in the several parts and branches of it. He was sorrowful for the fact he made confession of his sin, and made restitution for the wrong done. He repented, saying, I have sinned, and cast down the thirty pieces of silver. Learn hence that a wicked man, when conscience is thoroughly awakened, may make confession of his sin, express some sorrow for it, and endeavor also the making of some satisfaction and restitution for the wrong and injury done by it. They that mourn for a sin is sin. They that mourn more for the intrinsic evil that is in sin, than for the penal and consequential evils that follow sin. They that confess sin voluntarily and freely, particularly, penitently, believingly, with an eye of sorrow upon their sin, with an eye of faith fixed upon their Savior. They that make restitution as an act of obedience to the command of God, and as an act of justice and righteousness to their neighbor, such persons' repentance shall find acceptance with God. Observe 3 the answer and reply which the wicked high priests and elders make to the despairing Judas. One, they excuse themselves. What is that to us? It's natural to all sinners to shift sin from themselves and lay it at any door rather than their own. Those that have had a share in the pleasure and profit of sin are yet very desirous to throw the odium and guilt of it upon others. What is that to us? Says these monsters in sin. Oh, wonderful stupidity! Could they think it nothing to them to hire a man to betray innocent blood? Was not the money given the price of blood, and the field they bought called the field of blood? Yet do they impudently say, What is it to us? 2. 
as they excuse and acquit themselves, so they load and burden him. Look thou to that. Lord, what miserable comforters are companions in sin to one another, when distress and sorrow comes upon them. When sin comes to be questioned in order to its being punished, every sinner is for shifting for himself and leaves his fellow in the lurch. Let us then remember the words of the Holy Ghost. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. How jolly soever sinners are together when in the height of their lust, they are but miserable comforters to one another upon a sick bed or under the lashes of an awakened conscience. But though they may avoid each other now, there is a time coming when it will be impossible. At the great day, the sinner shall see both his companions in sin and his sin themselves to be what he would never believe them here, the vilest of monsters. Observe 4. The sad and fatal end of Judas. He went forth and hanged himself. Horror and despair took hold upon him and seized his conscience, which was so intolerable that he ran to the halter for a remedy. Learn hence, 1. That conscience is a possible, though invisible, executioner. The wrath of man may be endured, but the wrath of God is insupportable, and the eruptions of conscience are irresistible. Oh, how intolerable are those scourges that lash us in the tender and vital part. Judas awakened with the horror of his fact, conscience begins to rouse, and the man is unable to bear up under the furious revenge of his own mind. There is an active principle in men's breasts and bosom, which seldom suffers daring sinners to pass in quiet to their graves. Guilt is naturally troublesome and uneasy. It disturbs the peace and serenity of the mind, and fills the soul with storms and thunder, both in life and death. How vainly did Judas hope to take sanctuary in a grave, and to meet with that ease in another world which he could not find in this. Thus ended this miserable man, Judas. Behold, ye professors of religion, the terrible example of God's justice on a deceitful hypocrite. Behold, a disciple, an apostle, first a traitor, then a self-murderer. Behold, all ye covetous worldlings, to what the love of that accursed idol has brought this wretched apostle. Behold, Judas, once shining in the robes of glorious profession, now shining in the flames of God's eternal wrath and vengeance. Lord, how earnest ought we be for thy preserving grace, when neither the presence, the miracles, the sermons, the sacraments of Christ could preserve and secure a professor, a disciple, an apostle from the fatal mischief of a ruinous apostasy. Let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. Verses 6 through 10. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, the nicety and scrupulosity of these hypocrites. They made no scruple to give money to shed blood, but they scrupled the putting of that money into the treasury, which was the price of blood. They are afraid to defile their treasury, but are not afraid to pollute their souls. Thus hypocrites strain at an ad and swallow a camel. Scruple a ceremony, but make no conscience of murder and perjury. Observe, two, the use which they put this money to, which Judas brought them. They bought with it a field to bury strangers in. Thus Christ, 
who was himself a stranger in a borrowed grave, by the price of his blood, being thirty pieces of silver, confers graves on many strangers. Observe, lastly, how the wisdom of God ordered it, that thereby a scripture prophecy might be fulfilled. Zechariah 11.13 They weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver, and I took and cast them into the potter. Whence learn that all the indignities and abasing sufferings which the Lord Jesus underwent were not only foreordained by God, but also foretold by the holy prophets. His being scourged, buffeted, spit upon, and here being sold for thirty pieces of silver. Verses 11 through 14. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then saith Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered to him never a word insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, that our Savior readily answers Pilate, but refuses to answer the chief priests before Pilate. Pilate asks him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus readily answers, Thou sayest, or, It is as thou sayest. But to all the accusations of the chief priests, and to all that they'd laid to his charge before Pilate, our Savior answers, never a word. Probably for these reasons, because his innocency was such as needed no apology, because their calumnities and accusations were so notoriously false that they needed no confutation, to show his contempt of death, and to teach us by his own example patience and silence, when for his sake we are slandered and traduced. Learn, then, that although we are not obliged to answer every captious and ensnaring question, nor to refute every slander and false accusation, yet we are bound faithfully to own and confess the truth when we are solemnly called thereunto. Our Savior, as a deaf man, hears not, answers not, the calumnities of the chief priests. But when Pilate asks him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Or as St. Mark has it, Art thou the son of the blessed? Jesus says, I am, though he knew that answer would cost him his life. Hence the apostle 1 Timothy 4.13 says that Christ, before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession, teaching us sometimes to hold our peace when our reputation is concerned, but never to be silent when the honor of God, the glory of his truth, the edification and confirmation of others may effectually be promoted by our open confession. Then must we, with Christ, give a direct, plain, and sincere answer. For whoever denies him, or any truth of his, knowingly and willfully, him will Christ deny in the presence of his Father, and before all his holy angels. Verses 15 through 18. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner, called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you? Barabbas? or Jesus, which is called Christ, for he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Burkett notes, Now at the feast, that is, at the feast of the Passover, which by way of eminence is called the feast, the governor used to release a prisoner, possibly by way of memorial of their deliverance out of Egypt. Accordingly, Pilate makes a motion to them, that Christ may be the prisoner set at liberty in honor at their feast, for he was sensible that what they did was out of envy and malice. As covetousness sold Christ, so envy delivered him. 
Envy is a killing and murderous passion. Envy slayeth the silly one. Job 5.2 That is, it slays the silly person who harbors this pestilent lust in his bosom and is like a fire in his bones continuously preying upon him, causing him to pine away and die miserably because another lives happily. To envy another man's prosperity is an argument of the worst simplicity. Yea, farther, and envy slayeth the silly one. So it prompts and provokes the sinner to seek the slaying of simple and innocent ones. Envy wishes the envied person out of the way, yea, out of the world, and if need be, will not only wish it, but lend a lift towards it too. Witness the chief priests here, whose envy was so conspicuous that Pilate himself takes notice of it, and says he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Verse 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Burkett notes, There are several sorts or kinds of dreams, natural, moral, diabolical, and divine. The question is, what kind of dream was this? Not natural, all agree. Some think it was diabolical, and that Satan hoped thereby to prevent the work of man's redemption by the death of Christ. But if so, why had not Pilate the dream rather than his wife? Probably this was from God, for even our very dreams are ordered by God. Our sleeping, as well as our waking times, are in God's hands. Learn, hence, how wonderfully the wisdom and power of God is seen in this woman's testimony, which she gave to the innocence of our Savior. When all his disciples were fled from him, when none of his friends durst speak a word for him, God raises up a woman, a stranger, a pagan, to give evidence of his innocency. And it's observable that at our Savior's trial, not one mouth was open to plead or speak a word for him in defense of innocency itself, but only Pilate's and his wife. They both pronounced him righteous, though they were Gentiles and pagans, while his own kindred and countrymen, the Jews, thirst after his righteous and innocent blood. Verses 20 through 23. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. How exceedingly unwilling and adverse Pilate was to be the instrument of our Savior's death. 1. While he bids the Jews take him themselves and judge him according to their laws. Another, While he offers to save Christ in honor of their feast, when by custom he was to release a prisoner, and this prisoner he desired might be Jesus. When this would not satisfy, he expostulates with them about our Savior's innocency. What evil has he done? Nay, St. Luke says, chapter 23, that Pilate came forth three times and professed that he found no fault in him. Yet though Pilate was satisfied, the Jews would not be denied. Learn thence that wicked men and hypocrites within the visible church may be guilty of such tremendous acts of wickedness as the conscience of infidels and pagans without the church may boggle at and protest against. Pilate, a pagan, absolves Christ, while hypocritical Jews, which had heard his doctrine and seen his miracles, condemn him. But observe, too, 
who influenced the main body of the Jews to desire Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. It was the chief priests and elders. They persuaded the multitude. Woe to the people when their guides and leaders are corrupt, for then they shall be tempted by wicked counsel. And woe unto them much more if they follow their wicked and penurious counsels. Thus did the Jews follow their guides, the chief priests, till they had preserved Barabbas and destroyed Jesus. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Burkett notes, Two things are here observable in Pilate's washing of his hands. One, by this action he pronounces our Savior's innocency, and was willing thereby to testify his own, that he did not content to our Savior's death washing the hands being a usual ceremony in protestation of a person's innocency. But two, it was great folly and madness in Pilate to think the washing of his hands did or could free him from the guilt of innocent blood. O Pilate, thou had needeth rub hard if thou meanest to scour from thy soul the guilt of that crimson sin which thou hast committed. Thy guilt cleaves so close unto thee that nothing can expiate it but the blood which thou hast spilt. Neither was it any excuse of Pilate's sin that what he did was to please the people and to gratify their importunity. It's a fond apology for sin when persons pretend they were not committed with their own consent, but at others' instigation and importunity. Verse 25. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Burkett notes, That is, let the guilt and punishment of his blood rest upon us and our posterity, a most horrid and impious imprecation. The dreadful effects of it began to come upon them forty years after in the destruction of Jerusalem, and has rested and remained upon their posterity to this day, near seventeen hundred years, the Jews being vagabonds over the earth, abhorred by all nations wheresoever they come. The just God has heard their wicked wish and caused that blood to fall upon them in so severe, though righteous a manner, as must pierce the heart of those that read and observe it. God has given them blood to drink, as indeed they were worthy. This ought to be a terror and a warning to all persons, that they avoid all cursed imprecations and wicked wishes upon themselves or others. Woe to such as wish damnation to themselves, pox and plague upon others. How, if God says Amen, and ratifies in heaven thy cursed imprecations made on earth, as he did this one of the wicked Jews, his blood be on us and on our children. Yet what they, with a wicked mind, put up as a direful imprecation, we may, with a pious mind, offer up to God as a humble petition. Lord, let thy son's blood, not in the guilt and punishment, but in the efficacy and merit of it, be upon us and upon our posterity after us forevermore. Verse 26. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Burkett notes, As the death of the cross was a Roman punishment, so was it the manner of the Romans first to scourge and whip their malefactors, and then deliver them to be crucified. Now the manner of the Roman scourging is said to be thus. They stripped the condemned person and bound him to a post. Two strong men first scourged him with rods of thorns, and then two others scourged him with whips of cord full of knots. And lastly, 
two more with whips of wire, and therewith tore off the very flesh and skin from the person's back and sides. That our Savior was thus cruelly scourged seems to some not improbable from that of the psalmist. Psalm 129.3 The plowers plowed upon my back and made long furrows, which, if spoken prophetically of Christ, was literally fulfilled in the day of his scourging. But why was the precious body of our precious Lord thus galled and torn with scourging? Doubtless to fulfill that prophecy. I gave my back to the smitters, and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair, that by his stripes we might be healed, and to learn us patience from his example. Why should we think it strange to be scourged, either with the tongue or the hand, or with both, when we see our dear Redeemer bleeding by stripes and scourge before our eyes?' 